0: Father Rob Kroll, and me, Jim Fellows. Uh, Father Rob is not able to join us this week. He is leading a retreat and uh, is out of pocket for the time being. Um, I want to welcome all the new listeners that we got from who are fans of Father Rob and Relevant Radio. I hope that doesn't deter you from listening to this one or listening to previous podcasts because uh, Father Rob's got a lot of good wisdom. If you think that um, I'm just going to be yammering in your ear for the next uh, 45 minutes and you want to turn it off right away, don't, because that's the furthest from the truth. Uh, Mark and Molly Druffner are our guests for this podcast. They are the founders of the Partners for Hope Tanzania uh, Catholic Mission. Ten years ago, Mark and Molly were sitting in a church, heard the call to go and serve halfway around the world. Uh, Their story is pretty incredible about how they brought medicine and water and electricity and so much more to the people of Bwambo, Tanzania. Uh, This is something that they started 10 years ago and continue to do it today. I really hope you enjoy their story. Maybe move a little bit closer. That'd be great. You guys are going to have to cuddle a little. (laughs) So um, you guys have uh, started this mission, Partners for Hope. Um, You did it 10 years ago. What was the impetus to get this whole thing going? How did this start?
1: Well, when Mark asked me to marry him, I had one stipulation and that was if we could go to Africa. And he said, sure. So after um, he graduated from medical school, before his residency, we spent a year in Kenya, which is right next to Tanzania, and uh, at the base of Mount Kenya. And we worked for a year doing medical mission work and loved it. And then we always wanted to go back, um, but we had seven children instead (laughs) And when our youngest was one, um, we finally decided it was time. We had, we really just wanted to show the kids Africa. That was our main goal. And then um, we heard a priest at mass one day. And do you remember what he said?
2: Yeah. It was a Tanzanian priest from the diocese of Same, which is where we eventually ended up. And he just told stories of a hospital built by the Catholic Church in the 60s and 70s that, was, that had no doctor for six years and run by a few nurses and a few midwives and that there was no lab or surgery or ultrasound or anything and that women had severe complications of childbirth and they were thinking about closing the hospital. And so he was uh, there to raise money. So after mass, we talked to him uh, for quite a while, and told him that we thought we would come as a family, and he was incredulous, you know, to bring for us to bring our kids, our seven children, with us. So, uh, but we did, we we organized, and the following year, we actually, went. it
1: was four months later after he talked that quick. Well, we bought our tickets four months later. Wow, yeah, yeah we had to buy tickets yeah. early, yeah. and uh. Yeah, we were very nervous to go because we had a one-year-old, Rosie, who was still in diapers. And uh, so we had to pack up hundreds of cloth diapers. And um, But the kids were really excited. How
0: old was your oldest at the time?
1: He was 15. Okay. So, you know, the older kids helped a lot. And we did a lot of um, collecting of baby items and um, some medical equipment. We ended up with 18 bags um there were nine of us and sure so we each got two bags and very very funny pictures of us landing in kenya nairobi kenya and getting into a tiny little van just one of those rickety old like 60s vans um and we had to drive five hours i think it was in the middle of the night and there's a picture of us just crammed in there like sardines and so we asked the driver who didn't speak english very well um Do you know where we're going? And he said, Not really. I've never been to Tanzania before. (laughs) And so, needless to say, it took us 12 hours to get to our destination. And it was a very rough, rough ride. So, the the first couple days, actually the first week, we were there for five weeks the first time? No, three months. Oh, we were there for three months. It was three months. Okay. Um, I don't have a very good memory anymore. But so the first couple weeks were tough just getting settled in and figuring out how to live there. But
0: so I'm I'm remiss in mentioning this, but but Mark, you are a doctor, you're a general practitioner, so this isn't even uh, another layer to the whole thing. As far as the hospital needing a doctor, that that went straight to you,
2: right? Yeah, I was the first doctor there for six years, so um. It was it was shocking, and um, just trying to organize the hospital. uh, The pharmacy was just the boxes of old medications. There was no lab. There was no we had we had brought an ultrasound machine because they had no ultrasound there for labor and delivery. We brought a lot of medications. We brought a lot of medications. We had we had talked to um, the priest there before we came to find out what they needed, and so the first couple weeks was just reorganizing. And then patients really started to come to the hospital uh, because before that they were, if they had a serious case, they were um, driving uh, by truck or motorcycle three hours to the next hospital. Or walking. Or or walking, which would be six hours. A lot of patients that year would tell me they walked for six hours to come to the clinic.
0: Well, initially, was there any um, trust issues with Americans coming in, or or anything like that, or or,
2: or no? uh, I would say they they, the hospital had been built by the Dutch, so they were used to white people there, and we were different culture. They didn't; most people didn't speak English, so they knew that long ago. Europeans had built this hospital. you know with and the whole village had helped to build it because it was done with Dutch engineers and then the money ran out and they couldn't come back and so um, they but yeah I, I would say establishing trust was a very important part
1: one of the that. things though that they were they were really <clears throat> surprised by it was that we had seven kids They so that really kind of helped right away for yeah. us to bond yeah. yeah so a lot of women came to my house the first week to help me with the kids and to cook and to wash the clothes and because they said you know we've never seen a white person with more than two kids and so they were pretty shocked by that and yeah. it really it did really help to bond us it broke the ice. yeah because yeah, yeah. they,
2: they have large families and they I the the men or the women would just keep asking me if, if I have more than one wife <laughs> <laughs> Because they had just never yeah. seen that. They never even heard that, that white people had more
1: yeah. than two kids. So. Or they'd say, they'd say um, you have seven children? All from one body? <laughs> and they'd say, yeah, yeah, all from one <laughs> Anyway, it was fun. That's... It was really fun. The first couple weeks were a blast. Just, you know.
0: So, very... so your first time there was for how long? For three months. Three months. Mm-hmm. And you had um, No electricity. He had no water. Nodding works well in a
1: (laughs) podcast interview. Sorry, I was waiting for you to finish. I'm trying to be a good listener, Joe. No, you're good.
0: (laughs) So what, what was that like? What was the children's reaction to that? And how quickly were they able to adapt? Yeah, I'll let Molly talk
2: about her house where we lived.
1: We were really lucky. I was picturing that we were going to be living in like a big hut because they didn't describe to us what the house was like. And you wouldn't ask that. It wouldn't have been polite to say, well, what kind of house do we live in? So we just crossed our fingers and showed up. And um, we were really lucky because it was a convent that sisters had used to live in and they had left. And so we had seven bedrooms. Um, And it was just a one level convent with a brick um, kitchen, uh, a lot of rats in that kitchen until Mark drove them away and uh cockroaches
2: but seven bedrooms not like we would have here they were yeah. like seven cells yeah. almost yeah. like large closets yeah. where there was a small sink a window and yeah. a bed
1: but the kids had never had their own room before yeah. so they were so excited yeah, was, wow and uh and we had an old um wood burning stove which was awesome because bread you know cookies everything turned out so beautifully but Our little Francis, who was four at the time, would feed the wood stove all day long. Like his favorite thing to do was to go out back, help the old man cut the wood and bring it in and feed the stove. So it was just, it was like a little house on the prairie. It did get old after about a month and the kids didn't want to carry in buckets of water anymore. They didn't want to feed the stove. They, you know, they were tired of the cockroaches. They were tired of the filth. Talk about baths. Yeah, so, and we did bucket baths about, oh, every third night. I would have to heat up all the water on the stove, and then each kid would come into the kitchen and strip down, and I'd give them a bucket bath. Of course, the older kids hid, but um, Rosie <laughs> loved it. She loved it. She'd sit in the kitchen, you know, I'd be cooking or making tea. We and she a be... plastic tub for her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the one, the one time when they all got sick, they all got diarrhea from bad water, and... That was really rough because, you know, they were really sick, both, all of them, for three or four days, and we, we had to carry water in to, you know, fill up the toilet and clean up everything. So that, I remember that just going, I'm never coming back to this place. Was, was that like gerardia or amoebas oh, or lovely. parasites? <laughs> <bacteria> <laughs> high.
0: Yeah. do i
2: mean there's, there's no filtration of the water. There's no chlorination of the water. It just comes out of the... Yeah. the mountain, and then it comes down by public pipes. And some people will open <laughs> the pipes to try to get their own water and contaminate the water. There's a lot the water. of water stealing. So, yeah. so the bacteria counts are very high like in the water. Yeah.
1: And it makes sense, you know, water is a precious commodity. So it's something that we worked on a lot, was trying to, you know, the system that they had was just plastic pipes and they would just wrap pieces of material around the areas where there were holes or where there was leakage. And so one of our main, one of my main goals, especially while Mark was in the hospital was let's figure out this water thing because I did want to come back, <laughs> but I wanted water. And so it was kind of selfish for selfish reasons, but we got, initially we got water into the convent, into the hospital and into the priest's um, rectory mm. um, through huge plastic water tanks. They were 10,000 liter water tanks and they were, you know, $500 a piece. So that was like my b- very first fundraiser was mm-hmm. to buy water tanks. And it would just be a water catchment system. Top of the mountain, there's a water spring, and it would feed the pipes that would go into the water tanks. So the next year we came, we all had water. Oh. And it was kind of a miracle for people because mm-hmm. they had never had water in the hospital before.
2: Well, yeah, in the hospital, I mean, imagine delivering a baby without running water. No running water, no sinks. I can't imagine delivering a baby, period. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the nurses would, after delivery, would be carrying in buckets of water to wipe everything down and and scrub the floor and everything. It was a lot of work. And it it couldn't be done well without running water. So it it was just a huge accomplishment that Molly was able to raise money were simple tanks, just reservoir tanks outside, that would fill up all the time. So when you needed water, it was right there.
1: And the other thing about um, Mark's surgeries, uh, one time he asked me to come up and assist, not assist, but just to be there for him and pray, because he knew that there was a woman that was probably going to die. She was bleeding to death, and um, they ha- he had to go in and find out, you know, what exactly was wrong with her. So he asked for the ultrasound machine and the nurse said no electricity you know there's no generator mm-hmm. uh that we they had used the generator the day before for a church um uh, celebration with the with the organ, the organ yeah. and so there was no gas left in the generator nobody knew where to find um, you know this is diesel It's It's gas, but it's
2: hard to find gas there. So so
1: we're trying to, Mark is trying to figure out what's wrong with this woman and why she's bleeding. Sorry. And um, so he said, go Julian, take this bucket and run down the hill to the old man's um, house and ask him if he has any gas. We got to get this ultrasound machine working. So Julian ran down and he came back with an empty bucket. He said, dad, nobody has gas. So, Mark remembered that when he was mowing the lawn as a little kid that he was with the fumes of the um, lawnmower that he was able to you know finish the lawn without yeah, having to go course. back to the garage and fill up the gas of little, little gas yeah. Light, yeah so he shook the generator to get the fumes going, and he got one minute of electricity to look at the woman's belly with the ultrasound the ultrasound him. and then he can tell the rest.
2: Yeah, well, she ended up having a ruptured atopic pregnancy, which was there lethal. Some people would bleed to death that way. So we were able to do the surgery because uh, we knew what was wrong with her. Before that, we hadn't, we didn't know why her, her blood pressure was so low.
0: So that's um, uh, just to be clear. That's where the the um, the the. the it tries to implant within the fallopian tube right. and not within
2: the uterus. Correct. And then the, fallopi- the, the the baby grows, bursts the fallopian tube. Right. The fallopian tube starts to bleed excessively. Right. And so the woman is bleeding to death internally. Yeah. And it can be liters of blood internally. Okay. And, and Yeah, and it was. Um, but that's just an example of that there was no electricity. We couldn't just plug the ultrasound machine into the wall. Right. We had to find a generator. So that was part of...
1: So watching you know, Mark, I watched Mark do the surgery and prayed the rosary while he was doing it because I just, you know, we, of course, want everyone to survive. And um, it was a pretty gruesome surgery. I won't, I won't describe it in detail. He had a headlamp on because we didn't have electricity. And, um, you know, the nurses were helping bring in buckets of water and do everything they could. But um, watching that, I said, there is absolutely no reason that they should be, Mark should have to work like this and patients should have to die, you know, because of lack of electricity. So the next year we started, uh, or that summer we started raising money for uh, solar panels and backup battery system. And so, within the next couple of years, we had every building on the mission covered with, a, you know, a solar panel, and then a backup battery system in each building, um, in case there wasn't any sun. You know, in case there was a, a time, uh, a rainy during the rainy season, they don't get a lot of sun, so there's battery backup. So now there's electricity throughout the entire mission, and it changes everything. I mean, everybody can s- charge their cell phones and. Um, you know, Mark has a lot of medical equipment. And it's
2: amazing because sometimes we'll be walking near the village at night. We go for a walk and all the power is out in the whole region because there is a grid system, but it goes out sometimes for a day or two at a time. Mm -hmm. And you look up on the hill and there's this lit mission hospital and every, and it's functioning and people are working and patients are being taken care of because of the electricity you know because of the, the Molly was able to raise and that,
1: that was help, that was really uh, helped to happen through our sister parishes so we have one sister parish two sister parishes in Stillwater St. Michael's and St. Mary's they were the ones that helped raise the money for not only the electricity but then uh, another water project that we did so that the villagers could also have water So we started collecting funds for water reservoirs, which are 70,000 liters. And they're just enormous cement reservoirs. Um, We got three, we're able to collect money for three on the the mountain, kind of spread out in the neighborhoods. And so now um, most people in Guambo have access to water. And what they do is they, they have a small water tank on their property that costs about $100 and then uh, they get water from the reservoirs into their homes and into their farms and they're able to irrigate their farms, which was a huge problem before they couldn't irrigate. So things have really developed and it's just amazing. You know, everybody's $10 donation, $25 donation, you know, could actually save a family's life if they could buy a water tank, you know, for $100. And it just, to me, it's just been so life-giving and it's just such an example of how you know when christians get together and decide to do something together just how powerful that can be we've had a lot of miracle stories i mean a lot you know where i just thought you know like the story about grace you know that was our kind of our first miracle so um I don't know if you want me to tell that story. It's going be well. Hard. People can watch
0: if you want to know about the story of grace, which is a beautiful story. Um, you can watch the the, the promotional video that uh, that's been done for the ten year anniversary, and that'll be linked in the description. After and you can go there after you're done listening to the interview. Um, how many people are in Buambo? How many how many people live there?
1: It's about seventy five hundred just in the village itself, which is a pretty small village. It's probably. The size of I don't know what would it be the size of a neighborhood in Stillwater maybe
2: but, but the catchment area of the hospital, like who who comes to the hospital it's, we know it's more than 50,000 because it, it encompasses
0: 50,000 people, people come to the hospital lie
2: in the hospital not every year but yeah. no <laughs> but there's a
0: potential yeah. of.
2: it would be you know wow. an equivalent around here, you know, say in western Wisconsin, take three small towns over 200 square miles that have maybe three of their own little hospitals. And there we have one hospital and it would serve a large region of people. Sure.
1: And it used to be just a little building where people would come. um, And now we have maternity ward, men's ward, women's ward, children's ward, new pharmacy. Um, an area for HIV where people can come every week. And we also have a mobile clinic. Uh, It really frustrated me that we'd go to these small towns and there would be these little broken down dispensaries with a nurse and no medication. Like she would just be in the building, you know, waiting for people to come and then she wouldn't be able to offer them any medical care. So we started a mobile clinic. Um, Every Friday they go out, some nurses and usually one doctor with medications um, we found, we got a portable ultrasound machine, um, so they're able to go out in the truck and spend the whole day in a village or two villages and serve people that way, usually under a tree or in a school. And uh, if somebody has a really serious case, they bring them back to the hospital.
2: Well, we partnered with a local healthcare group um, and they were getting rid of a, a portable x-ray machine. So we were able to pack that in um, a crate and have it sent over to Tanzania, to, our, um, to Bombo, and it's still functioning. There's a computer system that's with it. I had to learn how to use the computer system to hook up all the wiring for the x-ray machine. Uh, the tech showed me everything. I took pictures of it. We packed it in the crate, said some prayers, <laughs> that it would get there intact, and it did. Uh, and we unpacked it, and, and, and it's still functioning. Uh, so we have x-ray. I'm
1: sorry for laughing. But The, the way they got it into the x-ray building was yeah, yeah. they had a bunch of sand from a pile, a pile of sand that they were doing construction with and they couldn't figure out how are we going to get this it's one ton. 1,500.
2: Yeah, it's 1,500 pound machine, machine off the truck because there's no uh, forklift, you yeah. know, at the top of the Just mountain. Now, they had, put yeah. it for, for, they had put it from the ship onto the truck, but yeah. it was so four then feet they, off the ground. <laughs> you
0: were on your own. <laughs> yeah.
1: So then they got about 10 guys to shift it onto the sand pile. Yeah. And then from the sand pile, they slid it into the building. Yeah. And it was just uh, the whole scene. And I'm like, yeah. you're going to get sand into the x-ray machine. Yeah. Like, you know, no, Mama Rosie, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> no problem. No problem. And yeah. I was like, oh, my goodness. If yeah. this thing works, it's going to be a miracle. <laughs> And it was, I mean, the first day Mark took his first X-ray of a guy's leg was just incredible. I mean, it was, they hadn't had an X-ray machine there at all. Um, So I think the thing that we're really working on now is trying to help, you know, COVID has just arrived in Tanzania, literally like in the last two weeks Mm. and it's February Um, and we're just trying to figure out how are they gonna deal with that many people who are suffering from COVID and probably gonna die? There's only a couple of ventilators in the whole country and we just had one donated by um, the Ryan Foundation in Chicago. It's a universal anesthesia machine with a ventilator connected to it. So now we have anesthesia for the first time. We've never had anesthesia before and um, a ventilator. So it's wow. it's pretty amazing that you know one small family foundation um, could, and that's just it friend. it's yeah. the two of you and
0: yeah. your kids yeah. that's that's the foundation that's the charity because you two guys running it well, we there's not a, lot a staff of
1: we've got a lot of volunteers coming. right yep. so that's been awesome we've got medical volunteers we've had people who just wanted to come and plant trees we've had you know, teenage kids come because their parents wanted to basically kick them out of the house or send them to boarding school. You know, we've had, we've had a lot and we had a really, I have to mention this. I know you have to.
0: No, you're fine. I'm just, I'm being mindful of, uh, your guys' time.
1: There's a wonderful artist in the Twin Cities named Nick Markell. He's an iconographer and you can see his work all over Twin Cities and California, Washington, DC. Well, he volunteered to come and paint an icon in the church. It's called the Risen Christ of Guambo, so it's an original. And he spent two weeks there, actually two summers in a row, and invited the kids to come in and learn how to paint icons, or they say write icons. So very trusting guy allowed these kids to come in and help him. And um, so we have a really beautiful mural on the back of our altar and um, so the kids have really been involved they painted all the buildings you know they fixed windows they the uh, paint icons you know plant trees so the kids have been very involved in everything we've done
0: the the hospital and the water and the electricity are all amazing things that you guys have done. But I also want to hear about the microloans and how that got going and what's going on with the microloans today.
1: Well, like I said in the beginning, there were a lot of women that came to my kitchen, you know, to teach me how to cook, how to make chapati and, um, you know, just... Anyway, lots of cooking, lots of recipes, but um, they would often also come to ask for money because they wanted to start businesses. And they would say something like, "If I only had, you know, a hundred thousand shillings, which is fifty dollars, I could start a business with my garden produce. I just need to buy a cart to get it to the market. Or if I only had, you know, twenty-five dollars, I could buy twenty-five chickens and I could start an egg, you know, selling business and take it to the market every week." And it was this constant ask for fifty to a hundred dollars to start a business, and so I thought this is ridiculous. You know, I spend fifty dollars on coffee in a month. It's there's no reason why we can't provide money for women to start businesses. But
2: the key fact there is there are no banks in the area, so you can't get a loan anywhere. And um, even the church, you know, tries to loan a little bit of money, but there isn't a loan system anywhere. Yeah.
1: Okay? So I read a lot about microloans and about community banks. And we, my sister and I had a party like a Christmas party and asked all the women there to donate a hundred dollars each. And so the first year we came to start the microloan, um, program was, we brought a thousand dollars in cash and we were able to present, you know, a hundred dollars to each woman, mostly women from the church. Um, and so of course they were so excited and they started 10 businesses and they're still thriving today. In fact, some of those women have gotten pretty wealthy. Um, and then I just thought that was too easy, you know, to have a party with women and collect a hundred dollars each. So I, we've done that every year. We've had a luncheon, um, sometimes private parties and homes and women's lo- you know, really happy to sponsor one woman. I give them a picture of that woman. I asked the sponsor to pray for them. Um, And it's been amazing. It's really been amazing. So we have three villages now that have these microloan programs. And um, they're asking me to come down to the diocese now and kind of do a workshop for other parishes. Um, So it's run by the parish. Parish council oversees it. Um, They're very formal about how they collect money. They don't pay the loan back to us. They pay the loan back to the community bank. And then Hmm. they get, that generates more loans for more women.
0: Interesting. So they kind of pay it forward. Yep. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's
1: really fun. And it's fun to see the businesses still going. And, you know, one year we came back and the women all had, like, really fancy dresses on and fancy hairdos. And I was like, what's going on? You know, is it a wedding or something? And the priest told us, no, it's because their businesses are thriving. And they're sending their children to school. So it's been really, it's really Amazing to see what a hundred dollars can do, or yeah. even 25.
0: So it's, it's incredibly empowering.
1: Yeah, it's been, I don't know, it's so overwhelming sometimes how kind of easy it's been to, you know, offer a new life to people, plant seeds of hope for people, um, and just knowing that, you know, Americans are so generous. We've never gone someplace where people didn't, you know, want to offer. I, we were in New York. Um, a couple of years ago, fundraising, and uh, a homeless woman came up to me, and she said, "Are you going to be here for a while after Mass?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll be here for about an hour." She goes, "I'll be right back," and she came back with this plastic baggie full of change. She had quarters and pennies in it, and she goes, "This is all that I have, but I want to give it to you for your work." So, I didn't want to take it, but she made me. So, <laughs> but she said, "It's all you know. It's all that she had. She was the. She was the." What is it? The widow's might.
0: No. Widow. Yeah. yeah. Talk, if you can talk a little bit about what compelled you to take on such an extraordinary task. Like, and, I mean, it's enough of a task to raise seven kids.
2: I think um, it, it probably started from the medical perspective first that um, wanting to be useful to people who are suffering, who just need medical care. Um, because if I'm a doctor and I'm here and over there there's no doctor in the hospital it it only made sense to me well why wouldn't I go over there I people are people they have the same medical problems here as they do there they want to have healthy babies they want their kids their their wife to survive childbirth they so it it only it was just a direct call I mean that's all I can say and then um, you know, we don't look at the big picture really very often. It was often the individual patient. And I I know that every time I go, I, I find myself in several situations that I can really say if I wasn't there to offer my medical care, that patient would have died easily. And so it doesn't mean that I'll be able, that we'll be able to save everyone and do everything, but it's it's individual patient care. And then based on that, were the needs for water, were the needs for you know, electricity and loans, microloans, things that affect people's lives.
1: I think also we were really inspired by our Catholic worker community here in Stillwater. And there was the founder the founders, Tom and Karen Loom, um, they followed Dorothy Day's maxim, which is one person at a time. And it's the same as Mother Teresa. Don't try to save the world. Just be there and be available to support to educate to offer food to offer clothing a home to one person at a time and that's how mother Teresa started she started with one and so when you start to kind of open your heart to that or open your home to to that idea um people show up you know and (laughs) it we just it, for us, it was Africa showed up. But for some people, it's just your neighbor or it's your relative or it's your, even your children in your own home who are suffering. And you just need to be there and be available to whatever their needs are. And,
2: and not being afraid. I think we are afraid. We are afraid of risk. We are afraid of illness. We are afraid of the unknown. But that goes with anything we do in our own communities. But a lot of physicians that I know are afraid to do mission work or they're tied down with all of our financial needs or wants. Your faith comes in. And that's where you have to, you know, we, we, we've had to trust in God to say, Lord, just take care of us. This is what we want to do for you, for, not only for the church, you know, the Catholic hospital there, but each patient who's made in your image and likeness. So come on, Lord, figure this out for us. That's so what I say. we're here, you know, we'll do it.
1: Yeah. yeah, but you have to figure out the details. Teresa of Avila always said, you know, God is amongst the pots and the pans with this idea. She started 17 foundations uh, with this idea that he will figure out the details. And if you don't get bogged down by that fear of the details of the money and the, your potential illness and the travel and all that, and you just say, Lord, just provide whatever we need well, to do the work, and he sends us people always.
2: Yes. People, people are so generous. I mean, I my faith in humanity was rebuilt with this because people come forward and offer, you know, a crate to ship an X-ray machine, uh, an X-ray machine. You know, somebody who knows somebody who ships to the East Coast to get an X-ray machine on a ship. I mean, all these we do, we don't know how to do any of it. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't have any training in any of this stuff. But if you want to do it, yeah people come come out of the woodwork. we did a shoe drive
1: last year and I was Um, thinking oh maybe we'll get like 50 pairs of shoes (laughs) oh boy I put it on Facebook and we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pairs of shoes but it was so awesome because we got there all these a lot of the kids don't have shoes but they can't go to school unless they have a pair (laughs) and they're kind of expensive so We brought just suitcases last year full of shoes, and my friend Deanne Wessel was with me, and we just set up all the shoes in the church according to size and, you know, lined up families and said, come in and get some shoes, and it was like, it's like we had given them, you know, a a car. I mean, it was just the most exciting day, and then they had a huge celebration for us with music and food, and so... And that's my favorite part. I think is just being part of the parish. There, there are two parishes actually. There's two churches. One that we built. We built a, a church in a parish next door. Um, we had to raise about two hundred and fifty thousand to build that church. But it's a huge church, and a lot of the people in the village couldn't go to mass because they had to walk too far, um, and it's very. The roads are bad, and it's rainy sometimes, and really hard to walk. So. Um, this village now has a church and many people have come and became Catholic because they just love the church so much. You know, they love that people gather there and that there's music. Well, and the kids are
2: receiving the sacraments and they're, they're marrying. They're, they're not just living together. They're actually, you know, getting married and, ha- and being able to have a Catholic, you know, marriage and a and, and, you know, wedding. Did
0: you even foresee... Uh, things like that happening when you first started, like that this was going to be the end
2: result, or
1: no. not at all. We thought we were going on one mission trip. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> we
1: thought we were going for our, you know check it out, but
2: well, be our, we had no idea. This will be our twelfth year, so we've gone every year. Sometimes we've gone twice a year. Yeah, well, Molly's been there at least thirteen or fourteen times. Yeah.
1: The other thing that we've done, and I should just admit this because uh, it's part of the fun. Is we go on a short safari after every trip and it's kind of like a retreat for us. Mm-hmm. We go to a very simple safari lodge, beautiful lodge. Um, and so the kids really look forward to that every year, just seeing the elephants and the giraffe and the zebra and everything. That's and, awesome. Yeah. So, you know, we save our money. The kids save their money all year so that we can do something like that. So it is, it's, it's not just work. It's fun it's too.
0: So, to be, to be clear, the nonprofit isn't paying for your trip. You no. guys are paying for that all yourself. No, we do
1: they do we do raise money for our plane tickets yeah. and people and we tell people that we do a fundraiser every year yeah. a big gala and we say this is for travel expenses right um, but then anything we do outside of the mission we pay for so the other uh, organization i would like to i have to mention is mission doctors association in los angeles so for medical people nurses or physicians or physical therapists anybody involved in medicine who want to volunteer at a place like bombo They've got hospitals all over the world that need nurses and doctors and Mission Doctors has, I think, eight sites now. Buambo is one of them where they send volunteers. And that's really how we started. We started with Mission Doctors. They have supported us for the last 12 years with the medical part of our work. Um, they support us in terms of just making sure we're doing all the right things with our visas and our all the details for travel. Uh, Elise Frederick at Mission Doctors and her staff have really supported us. Um, so that should be mentioned that they, you know, anytime we do a big medical project, big medical fundraiser, we do that through Mission Doctors because they're just so good at what they do.
0: Now, you are two people that don't um, let the grass grow under your feet. I think that's a fair statement. So you've, you've accomplished so much within Buambo. What's, uh, what are you looking for for 2021? What are the things that you're hoping to get done?
2: Well, I think if, if we can both get vaccinated uh, against COVID, I think we will feel more comfortable going over there, but um, they're gonna need oxygen machines. Um, you know, in Tanzania, there's, there's no really stored oxygen tanks, there's very little so there's machines called oxygen extractors extractors which take oxygen out of the air give it to patients so we're raising money for that we're raising money for just ppe masks and gloves and soap and buckets and um just dealing with the pandemic because who knows how long it's going to go on right and that will be you know that will be their main focus now that that's just one aspect but continuing on we are finishing the mother baby center which is um uh delivery rooms and a new operating room for c-section and um to caring for, for mothers and babies and that'll need power that'll need solar there's so that's a, an expansion project so it, it keeps going and yeah. long, long after we'll get we have another we're church dead. we're building
1: we have about we have to get find money for the floor um and windows Um, and then it'll be finished. But that's another, you know, $50,000 that we have to raise. Um, And that's a church in a very poor area in the desert. Um, So, you know, there's always a project. Um, There's always, you know, room for more volunteers, for more financial support, um, material goods, you know, coats and shoes and ultrasound machines. (laughs) So um, we're really looking forward to going back. I miss it a lot and I'm sad that we didn't get to go back this year.
0: But... um, Well, and I'm gonna put a link in the description to go to your website, but uh, tell them if they're listening, just tell them how they can get to your website if they wanna help.
1: Yeah, so if you'd like to donate um, to what we're doing in Buambo, it's p4ht.org, which stands for Partners for Hope Tanzania, p4ht.org. And then for the COVID prevention and the PPE, anything to do with medical, uh, Mission Doctors Association slash Druffner, which is our last name, D R U F F as in Frank N-E-R. And we'd just be so grateful for, you know, for $5, for $1,000, for anything you can do to help us uh, continue our work. So we're we're very blessed to know Jim and to be invited to speak with him and Uh, We love his podcast, so we want to promote that as well. And um, Father Kroll is awesome. Um, Mark got to be on retreat with him a long time ago and was so excited that that he and Jim started the podcast. So spread it to your friends far and wide, and um, (laughs) let's let's let our faith travel and we can, you know, be ins- inspire people together.
0: You, um, you guys have an amazing story and I'm so happy that we had the opportunity to share that with the listeners that we have. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, We're very thank grateful. You. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, father Ops should be joining us again next week. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you watched the video, um, that's connected that I've got a link to go visit their website. Uh, I'll provide a link in the description as well and uh, please uh, pray for Mark and Molly and their mission if you feel compelled to donate um, they would absolutely love that uh, thanks and we will be talking to you next week folks take care and God bless